0: You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Here's Nate. Well, the book of Exodus is a book all about the liberation of God's people. Specifically, the nation of Israel and their being set free from their slavery in Egypt. but This book has served as a wonderful reminder to God's people in every generation that God has called us to live separately from the world in which we live, and that he has called us out of the world, called us out of Egypt into a life of wonderful and abundant freedom and relationship with him. And so, the Exodus. Now, this book is divided basically into two major sections. You have chapter 1 through chapter 18, in which we'll read of the Exodus of the people of Egypt. The actual departure. What led up to the angst and frustration of the people. That What caused them to cry out to God in prayer. God's development of their deliverer, a man named Moses, to lead them out of their slavery. The plagues that God brought upon the nation of Egypt in order to finally allow for the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to allow for the people of Israel to depart. And the crossing of the Red Sea, the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. And so the first half of the book basically is dedicated to the actual Exodus. And then once they get into the wilderness and have been set free from Egypt, then God begins to establish the instructions for worship in the nation. And so an exciting book because of the wonderful deliverance and victory that God brings upon and for his people now it's also a wonderful book in the sense that it will point us to Christ in some wonderful ways Uh, we'll see Moses serve quite often as a picture of Jesus in his birth in his leadership in his deliverance of the law Jesus came bringing grace and truth while Moses came bringing the law. There are similarities between the two. But Christ is seen taking of the initial Passover and the seven feasts that are outlined in the latter half of the book and the exodus itself, the victory that's, that's present through the blood and the going through the Red Sea and all of that, the eating of the manna and the water. These are elements that point to Christ. Even the tabernacle and the high priestly system Are all fulfilled and seen ultimately in Christ Himself. And so we get Jesus Christ quite often in the book of Exodus. Now, the setting is really simple. We read in verse 1 of chapter 1 these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. And in the Hebrew, It actually would read, And these are the names of the sons of Israel. In other words, this book connects with the last book. The book of Exodus connects with the book of Genesis through that simple word, and. Now you might remember back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God spoke to Abraham and said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. But you follow the life of Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and finally his son Jacob. And at the end of the book of Genesis, you see a family of about 70 people living in Egypt under the protection of Joseph, who had become the right-hand man of Pharaoh there in Egypt. And, you know, beginning to grow and prosper, but a relatively small family of people gathered together. Now, the book of Exodus fast-forwards us almost 400 years later into a time where in that era of protection and blessing in Egypt, the family of Jacob had grown into the nation of Israel. And at some point, they're going to reach numbers between 2 and 3 million people. And so they've grown and prospered and have been blessed. Now in verse 2, we have a list of the sons of Jacob. And the list basically gives us the six sons of Leah, one son of Rachel, and then the sons of the maidservants of Rachel and then Leah. This is verse 2, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph, he writes, was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now in chapter 12, verse 37, we'll discover that there were 600,000 adult men, At the time of the Exodus. And so at the time of the Exodus, if you count women and children, there must have been at least 2 million people that comprised of the nation of Israel. And so they had grown, they had prospered, they had been wonderfully blessed during their time, during their stay, in basically the womb that was Egypt. For the people, but now it's time for them to be born and to leave the womb, to leave Egypt, and to stand on their own two feet with the grace and the strength and the help of God. Now, I should mention that Moses is the author of the book of Exodus. Joshua, Malachi, the disciples, Paul the Apostle hint at as much in some of their writings, but the greatest authority. ...on the authorship of the book of Exodus is Jesus himself. He often referred to the writings of Moses. He'll say things like, if you believed Moses. But Matthew 12, verse 26 gives us a unique glance at the authorship of this book. When Jesus said, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush... How God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Notice that Jesus refers to the burning bush passage. That's Exodus chapter three. And he calls Exodus chapter three an excerpt from the book of Moses. And so in the mind and heart of Christ, Moses is the author of this book, which means that he is the author of this book. And as a man who was Hebrew but raised in an Egyptian household, he was uniquely qualified to be able to record and write so prolifically and to record history so well. And so the book of Exodus, and we see the beginning there, the people multiplied greatly. Now as they grew, here's where the problem occurs. It says in verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and, if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So this new pharaoh rises up. He does not have historical ties or knowledge of Joseph. He doesn't feel a sense of obligation to Joseph. Therefore, he feels no sense of obligation to the Hebrew people. And all he sees is this numerous people. Too many and too mighty for us, he says. And he has a decision and his decision is made for him when fear rushes into his heart and that fear caused him to say to his people, let's deal shrewdly with the Hebrew people. Now I believe that this Pharaoh had a real and true opportunity here. God in speaking to Abraham years previously had said to him, Also in Genesis chapter 12, in the third verse, he had said, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I believe that this Pharaoh had an opportunity to bring blessing down upon Egypt. Had he blessed the people of Israel? Had he blessed the Hebrew nation? But instead he decided that he would cursed them, that he would deal shrewdly with them, and he brought the judgment of God upon his nation as a result of his actions. Therefore, verse 11, after this decree, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So again, the oppression, the persecution of Egypt against the Hebrew people. And you can't help but notice in verse 12, That in the midst of all of this persecution, in the midst of these taskmasters with their whips and their rank over the people of Israel, in the midst of the making of bricks and all of that, in the middle of all of that, it says in verse 12, that they multiplied greatly and they spread abroad. In other words, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The more they were oppressed, the more they spread. And this, of course, was a sign of God's favor upon their lives. And of course, this reminds us of the book of Acts and the persecution that came upon the first church. And when the persecution began to hit Jerusalem, it says that the believers began to flee, but as they fled, were proclaiming the way. And the gospel spread and increased as a result of persecution in one sense. And God's people oftentimes will only multiply under that intense pressure when it's brought against them. And so here, once again, the people of God prosper under that persecution and that pressure that was brought against them. Now, in the middle of all of this, it says that the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, he said, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, this is cruel activity and behavior from this Egyptian king. And his logic goes like this If a Hebrew son is born, kill him. He won't be able to marry a Hebrew woman and you know, propagate the Hebrew race. But if a Hebrew woman is born, allow her to live. She'll grow older. She'll grow up. And there will be a generation of Hebrew men that have been killed. And so she will then be forced to marry an Egyptian man and have Egyptian children with that Egyptian man. And we will phase out the people of Israel very pragmatic, but also incredibly wicked, incredibly evil, willing to kill a baby boy. And he gives this edict to these two Hebrew midwives. Now, it's not that these two women were the only midwives for the entire Hebrew population. More than likely, they were the two chief administrators of an entire organization of midwives taking care of the Hebrew people. And he gives them the directions, kill the Hebrew babies. Now, these midwives, they, you can assume, love babies, love birth. But above that, they feared God. It says in verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king Of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. The wonderful thing about these heroic women in their civil disobedience of Pharaoh is that they had this fear of God that moved them and motivated them. You know, when the fear of God is truly in a person's heart, it will lead them to do wonderful things. Not a paranoia of God, not a fright of God, but a healthy reverence and respect for who God is. Paul the Apostle was a man who carried this fear of God within his heart. He said in Second Corinthians 5, verse 9 and 10, he said, Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul wrote so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul had this sense within him that he was going to have to give an account for his life. He knew that he was covered by the blood and that Jesus was the only thing that he could cling to in order to receive eternal life. But upon receiving eternal life, he knew that he would stand before the throne of God and give an account for the life that he had lived. And Paul, in his heart, wanted to report that he had done what God desired of him. He had a fear of God within his heart, a respect and reverence for God within his heart. And would to God that more people would operate in their lives and in their hearts with this fear and this reverence of God within them and more of a fear of God within them. And these women, because they feared God more than they feared man, because they reverenced and respected God more than they respected Pharaoh, who was the most powerful man on earth, they knew that this man was as nothing in comparison to God. And so they decided to obey God rather than to obey man. And unfortunately, so much bad theology, liberal theology, bending our views, saying homosexuality is acceptable in God's sight, or abortion is no big deal. So often, so many of those statements and so often that lifestyle comes from a lack of the fear of the Lord. But when a Christian has a respect and a reverence for God, he becomes less bendable to the tides and the winds of culture and stands strong in the face of adversity. Now, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so this does appear to be deception, a lie, from the Hebrew midwives to Pharaoh. And, of course, if... There's the saving of a human life that comes as a result of deception. Then, biblically, God actually rewards a couple of people like that. Rahab the harlot being another one in the book of Joshua. And so they cover their tracks in order to bring human life. So God, verse 20, dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. He rewarded and blessed them. Then Pharaoh, as a result of all this, commanded all his people every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so the Pharaoh places the burden now onto the people of Egypt themselves. And no longer upon the midwives and says, listen, when a Hebrew boy is born, cast them into the Nile. Now in verse 1 of chapter 2, we narrow the narrative down to the birth of Moses. He was born during this time of great upheaval and persecution. And it says, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now, the names of these two people are, we'll learn in chapter 6, is Amram is the father, and Jochebed is the mother of Moses. And they already have two other siblings by the time they get around to having Moses. Miriam is Moses' older sister, And his older brother by three years is Aaron. And so the mother, Jochebed, sees that Moses is a fine child, it says. Literally that he was beautiful and that he was healthy. Stephen says in Acts chapter 7 that Moses was no ordinary child. So there was something beautiful about him. And so she hides him for a period of three months. And when, verse 3, she could hide him no longer, perhaps She could no longer bear to dress him up in girly clothing or something like that. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. So she prepares this little ark for Moses, this little basket, this little flotation device for him. She forms a plan and she places him in this flotation device in the reeds by the river bank. Now this was no accident and no random spot as we'll see in a moment. It says in verse four that his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river and while her young women walked beside the river she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women and she took it so it seems that jochebed picked this spot to place moses intentionally when she opened it she saw the child and behold the baby was crying almost on cue little baby moses and she took pity on him and said this is one of the hebrews children Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now this is a fascinating story. Jochebed places Moses in The basket places him in the reeds in the water. Moses' sister Miriam watches the scene unfold, and the princess of Egypt, Pharaoh's daughter, comes down to the riverbank to bathe. Her servants are there with her, and she sees this basket and tells her servants to go retrieve the basket. She opens the basket up, and on cue, baby Moses is crying. And she, in her heart, is moved with compassion and pity for this baby. And at that moment, Moses' sister pops out and suggests, Would you like me to find a Hebrew woman to nurse him for you? And Pharaoh's daughter takes the bait, calls the woman to herself, and tells this Hebrew woman that she would pay her to raise this child for a season. And, of course, that Hebrew woman was none other than Moses' own mother. It highlights for us a couple of different things. For the people of Israel, it would definitely highlight the sovereign plan of God. That God is able to direct the affairs of man for their blessing. That he would care for them, protect them, and sovereignly lead and guide them as a people. And it's good to know of the sovereign hand of God upon our lives as well. But also, I think it illustrates to us the reality that there are times in life where in order for us to receive the great blessing that God wants to put upon us, there may be a time where we have to let go of that which is dear to us. Jochebed let go of Moses for that moment, and as she let go of him, With her hands open, God was able to place something even greater into her life. She gets to raise her boy and receives a paycheck to do it. And just a wonderful blessing from the Lord. I want you to also to notice here all of the women involved in Moses' life. Jochebed, the midwives, Pharaoh's daughter, his older sister, Pharaoh's servants, These women were heroes, and here we have a book of the Bible portraying women in a heroic light, honoring them for the wonderful thing they had done. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water, and so the princess gives Moses an Egyptian name with a bit of a Hebrew flair to it because the Hebrew part, I drew him out of the water, is connected to that name, Moses. Now, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. You know, Moses had a decision to make, obviously on whether or not he would identify himself with the Hebrew people or with the Egyptian people. And he now here begins to refuse to be identified with uh, Pharaoh's household and identifies himself with the Hebrews. And he, verse 12, looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him, In the sand. And so Moses has this compassion for this injustice that he sees. Moses would have a burden for what is right, would have a burden for justice. And his compassion moved him to kill someone, which of course puts him at odds with Christ, who also saw his people and was led to have compassion for them but decided to allow himself to be killed on their and for their behalf. And so Moses here kills a man. Now he went out the next day, verse 13, and behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And the man answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. It says in Acts chapter 7 that Moses had supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Moses really presumed that they would get behind him, and they didn't. And once word got out that he had killed an Egyptian, Pharaoh heard of it and wanted to quell any insurrection that would arise. And so Moses had a death sentence placed over his head. And so he was forced to flee into the wilderness area of Midian. Now the priest of Midian, verse 16, had seven daughters, And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. They thought Moses was Egyptian because of his clothing. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. When you have seven daughters and a man behaves kindly to one of them, you take note. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, which means little bird. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses expressed his loneliness and his sojourning through the name of his son, Gershom. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew as they prayed as they cried out to God God heard their cry God remembered the covenant and God would now begin to act it had of course never escaped God's mind he had always seen them he had always heard he had always known but Moses is writing it in a way to let us know that now because the people had cried out to God God is ready and able and willing to act. And so Moses is out there in the wilderness, raising a family, beginning a life away from Egypt. But back in Egypt, the people of Israel groan and cry out to God. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.